problem when I got into Formula One was wrong car, wrong time. I gave myself one chance. It was over and I knew it was over. There's no way I was going to go back. Welcome everyone to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. If talent alone were enough to win world championships, then my guest this week would have many titles to his name. He had a raw, God-given ability that is rarely seen in our sport. Think Senna, think Hamilton, think Verstappen. As it happens, my guest won no world titles and nor did he win a Grand Prix. He tested only once for McLaren at Silverstone and he wrestled a Theodore at five races in late 1982, failing to qualify three times. Yet his story is still worth telling because this driver epitomised speed. The man I'm talking about is Tommy Byrne. How Tommy ever got to drive a Formula One car remains a mystery to many people because he had no money, not a cent to his name. He had to beg and borrow, often just to get from one race to the next in the junior formulas. The constant pressure for money sometimes coloured his judgement and led him astray. Because Tommy did enjoy a good party, but he always delivered in the cockpit of a racing car. Whether he was winning the 1981 Formula Ford Festival or the British Formula 3 Championship or at that test for McLaren. Tommy's story is perhaps the greatest what-if in the history of Formula One. What if a front-running team had taken him under their wing and given him a break? Of course, we'll never know the answer to that, but we can discuss it with the man himself. Tommy's been living in America for the last 35 years, yet he's still passionate about Formula One and he remembers his career as if it were yesterday. It's a wonderful story, if hugely frustrating. I hope you enjoy what he has to say. Tommy, it is great to speak to you. Funnily enough, I've just got back from the States. You're in the States in Pittsburgh. How much do you keep an eye on Formula One these days? I wake up every morning at six o'clock, no matter where I am. Uh, I make sure that I see it if I can. If I can't see it, obviously, I'll, I'll figure out some way to see it. But um, to be honest, most of the years, you know, I'd probably wake up at six and then fall back asleep at 6.15. <laughs> Not this year. This year is by far, I would say, the best Formula One year. Who do you fancy for the title now? Obviously Verstappen, because when he came in years ago, when he was a kid, he obviously was something different and he was he was the man. And, and obviously we're fed up with Lewis winning every championship. So, you know, it's time probably for a change. And um, so, yeah, I would be for Verstappen. And you've always liked the cut of his jib, have you, since he first came in in 2015? Yes, of course. I mean, he was the most different driver to come along in a long time. I remember Verstappen when he started. It was so hard to overtake back markers for everybody. But he seemed to be able to do it OK. Yeah, there's a forcefulness to him, isn't there? Well, Tommy, 40 years on, let's talk about you and Formula One now. How do you reflect on your career? First off, I never wanted to be a race car driver. I was going to be a welder. And uh, when I was 15 years of age, I left school and I went to work as a welder mechanic. And I met a guy there. He was going to Canada, which I thought was America because about the same at the time. And uh, he was sending letters back and said, what a great, you've got a big car, he's got this, he's got that. And I used to watch a lot of John Wayne movies. So I always knew that I was going to go to America 
as a welder mechanic or a welder or whatever the case will be. But I was definitely not going to be in Ireland, not because I hated Ireland, because I just didn't like the cold weather and the dampness and so on. And John Wayne. So I knew I was going to America. So that was it. I used to mess around with cars a lot, minis. And we drove around some football fields with my friends. And I was a mechanic up in Northern Ireland helping somebody out when I was 14, 15. I was never a fan of Formula One. I think I watched a movie. I think I, I watched Grand Prix. Had to be around about 1975 or 76 or something. So I kind of got a little bit of an interest. And I seen a car sitting outside, sitting outside the Fairways Hotel, which is right beside where we lived. And I think I sat in it. And then a friend of mine told me a couple of months later, he went up to a school in Mondello, drove a car, drove a Formula car, like it looked like a Formula One car to me when I sat in it. And uh, he said uh, he had a great time. It was 15, I think it was 15 pounds for 15 laps of 15 pounds. I said, did, uh, did I ask you for a license? He said, no, because I had no license. So a couple of months later, I got a ride up there and, or a lift. And uh, I did my 15 laps. And I spun seven times. It was raining. I spun seven times in 15 laps. And when I left there, instead of being a mechanic, I decided I was going to be a race car driver instead. And it was, it was that simple. I couldn't sleep, obviously. I couldn't sleep for at least a couple of days thinking about just how it felt, you know. So it was a lightning bolt moment for you, was it? From the moment you drove that car at Mondello? Yes, there was no question that I was, I had nothing in my mind. I was, since I was small working on the farm, you know, just because I love being on the farm, the farmers would say, hey, hey boy, what are you going to be when you, when you grow up? I said, going to be a mechanic. It was very simple. I was always going to be a mechanic. And then later on, I changed it to a welder. And then, uh, I, was, I think it was 18, it was 1976. So I was 18 when I went to Mondello to, to drive in the, it was a Crosley. And that was it. When I went home that day, that was it. I just absolutely could not, I could not focus until I became a race car driver. And the reason I thought it was possibility because Derek Daly and Bernard Devaney, so I kind of must have started reading some of the magazine at the time or looked at some of the papers. And I've seen two guys from Ireland went to the mines in, in, in uh, I think it was Australia. And I thought, well, it's possible to do it because if those guys did it, I'm sure I could do it. So that's exactly how I started. Did you have a mentor or was it all, were you a one-man band? No, no mentor, one-man band. Once I decided what I wanted to do, obviously I had to borrow the money for a car, which is 1250 pounds. I had a lot of friends. I mean, when I told somebody I was doing something, I had a lot of friends to help me, but no mentors. I had a mentor when I went to England, when I went over there for the first time, I met a guy called John McCambridge and he, he helped me a lot. You know, he helped me, he helped spread the word, but uh, no, no, no idea where it happened, where it came from and why. I decided that I was going to be a great driver and I think I could go all the way. I wasn't thinking Formula One. I was just thinking driving for a living. So you have a mentor in a PR sense, spreading the word. Only when I went to England. From 76, 77, 78, when I was in Ireland, no, there was no mentor. It was just me. So what about the driving side? Because you missed out on karting. How did you pick up how to be quick or did it just come completely naturally? It came naturally after two years of crashing. I got my first car and I crashed at the first race and then I crashed at the second race and I didn't own a trailer. I had friends take the car up there and take it back. And my mom would say, oh, so what are you going to do now? Because I had no money to fix it, of course. So I would go to bed depressed, wake up the next morning, have a just new attitude and 
call my friends, call around, get the money, get it fixed, and go back again the next week. We were so I was so green that Mundell, I didn't even know anything about gear ratios. So I had this car and borrowed everything. And I would be in Mondello. And then I decided, let's go to Kirkuson, which is Northern Ireland, the other track. It's a, it's a long, fast track. I had no idea what gears were. And some guy told me, you can't use the same gears up there as you use down here. You have to change them. <laughs> why? So I, so, so I, so I, I said, why? Well, I had no idea. I didn't believe them, of course, because why? It's just a gear. So I went up there. And then eventually somebody loaned me the two extra gears or whatever. And then I took the, I remember taking the transmission, the back of the Hewlett gearbox off, and everything just fell on the ground. And I just went, oh, wow, oh shit, what am I going to do now? So I asked somebody to help me. They put the gearbox together. So that was probably my fourth race. So totally green, absolutely no idea what I was doing. No mentor. If, even if I did, I wouldn't. I remember overtaking cars. I thought by driving down the inside of a car at a certain turn, and if you hit the brakes hard enough, the more smoke that came off the four tires, the better the brakes were because it seemed to work for me because every time I do- dove down the inside of somebody, I passed them because turns out later on, they were probably just scared because I was completely crazy and I didn't know what I was doing. So I could write a whole book just on the two years, I st- how I started. But most of the time was crashing, fixing it, crashing it, fixing it. Given how green you were, it's even more impressive that you made it to Formula One in little over four years. It's, it's, it's just crazy. I have a mom go into the bank. I told her what to say. She borrowed the money because my sister was pregnant and she was, uh, we had to put an extension on the house, which was mostly true, except for the extension. <laughs> the true bit was, was we needed the money. <laughs> true that was me, the money. And then it was, I think it was 4,500 pounds. I bought a PRS because Bernard Devaney was driving the PRS. And I figured if I buy the PRS, and maybe I was thinking ahead that if I got to England, there was a possibility of maybe being a PRS driver. So that's why I bought that one. And I won the first race because two guys crashed in front of me. The second race, I went upside down into the, into the trees and um, because somebody pulled, pulled over and crashed me. And I remember they all had a whip around for about 500 pounds uh, to try to fix the car. So it was like, People were talking about me like I was crazy, but I had something. There was something going on. People could see. So people helped me. People helped me a lot. If it wasn't for my personality, there's no way I would have got out of Ireland. I would never have got close. Tommy, you strike me as someone who, who, who is a ball of energy. And I think people will have fed off that and reacted well to it. Is that, is that the reality of it? There had to be something like that because I didn't know what I was doing at the time. But... I just know that I had a hell of a lot of people have me in Ireland. We used to have a, they had a bus. They came over when I did go to England to race, they hired a local bus. And I think it was 40 or 50 people came over on the bus to, to um, Alton Park. So they got the ferry across and came to the race. So, I mean, I had a fan club in 19, I think it was 1980. Something. So yeah, there was definitely, um, I spent a lot of time with uh, hustling, I would say. But I liked everybody. You get friends with somebody to try and get a sponsor, to try and get money. It was all about getting the money, getting the sponsor. It was mostly money. People helped me. And then my thing is I would, ha- I would, like, I would use them as much as I could. But then I became friends with everybody. So they were always my friends after the fact, whether I got money or whether I didn't get money. So you're racing Formula One cars after a little more than four years. Did you feel ready for Formula One? Obviously, 40 years later, no. Um, I, 
Well, I won my six championships. Well, five. I counted the Formula Ford Festival when Senna's car. I call that a championship. So I, I won everything that I could have won. And I did Formula One in the same year. The problem when I got into Formula One was wrong car, wrong time. It's, it's very simple. And of course, there was nothing available at the time. And I had a terrible time in Formula One because I was told that um, I couldn't drive. I remember specifically, um, if, Nicky, if Kiki Rosberg, who was leading the championship at the time, if he was in that car, he'd be on pole. Well, I obviously didn't handle that very well. So I told everybody to listen what I thought of them. So it was very, very difficult. So I didn't like it at all. When I, when I didn't qualify in maybe, I think it was like Harkenheim or somewhere, I was looking forward to flying home that night to get back in my Formula 3 car and win the race next day. That's, I just did not have a good time in Formula 1. We'll come back to, to Formula 3 because that's instrumental in, in a test that happened later in 82. But just to put a bit more flesh on the bone of, of this Theodore situation, you did the last five races of 82. How did the opportunity come about? I thought I was hired to drive. I, I know Jan Lammers was fired, who was a great driver in, in retrospect. Obviously, when we get older, we can see things a little bit clearer. Um, but he was fired for Tommy Brown. Well, Derek Daly obviously went, he was, he went to, to um, Williams. Then Jan was hired and then he was fired. Tommy Brown was brought in. And I don't know who did the deal. I know there was Rizzler was on the car. I know Easy Wide was on my helmet. I know I asked him for a certain amount of money. I think actually it was 50 grand for the first year, 250 grand for the second year and half a million for the third year. And they just laughed at me and said, how about nothing? So, so, that was Julian Randall's. That's Julian Randall's, the, the, the team manager of Theodore. There was actually two team managers. There was two. There was Julian Randall's and, and there was uh, Joe Ramirez. So there was two team managers. Joe, I liked a lot. Julian just was just, it was a big struggle. It was very tough. You know? But given that the team had either failed to qualify or retired from, I think, all but one race, so far in 82 did you have any concerns about racing that car you get one chance i mean i knew that there was no other drives available i had a contract with uh theater with um mclaren with ron dennis i they had an option on my services i don't even know where the contract is but i know i signed it because i went up to see him murray murray taylor sent me to see him and i i know they had an option on my services and before i drove to the theodore i had to ask you know ron could i do it and he said he said, we would advise not to because just sign one year if you have to. But other than that, don't. That's our advice to you, Tom. And I said, well, do you have any other? You know, are you, is there anything for me in the next couple of years with McLaren? He goes, no. So, yes, then I had some people saying, you know, what's your chance of ever getting back in the Formula One? Or what's your chance if you just say, no, I'll wait. You know, I wasn't, I really wasn't in the position to wait. You kind of have to take it. And you always think you're going to do a better job than the last guy, which was Jan Lambert. And by the way, I would have done a better job if they had been a little nicer to me, but it turns out that they didn't even want me in the team in the first place. Something happened somewhere down the road that I think money might have exchanged hands to get me in that car. And if I hadn't known that, then I would definitely have said no. How hostile an environment was it at Theodore? Well, actually, the guys were great. I mean, mechanics were great. Uh, Joe, I love Joe. Just, it was just really one hostile guy, and that's, that was Randall. But the, the biggest problem was I wanted to win. So I wanted to do well so bad 
And they didn't. I couldn't understand why, you know, they had a great driver, which obviously if you win your Formula 2 championships, win the cha- you have to be a, a good driver. And they just didn't want to, it didn't seem to make, make any difference whether they qualified or not. So because the car wasn't that bad on the fast tracks, the car was pretty good. On the slow tracks, it was really terrible. In Austria, I think I was 14 quickest in a practice session at one stage. And then something happened. I thought I heard a little bing at the engine. I don't know what it was, but I went from 15 quickest to just barely trying to qualify inside one hour, the space of an hour, you know, from my, I lost time. And of course, you just good drivers just don't lose time in one hour. Something has to change. Actually, it was Joe Ramirez. His answer to that was he brought Jackie Stewart up to tell me what I was doing wrong on the track. How did that go down? Remember, I had no heroes in Formula One. I just started Formula One. I didn't know who Jackie Stewart was. I knew he was a, a champion, but, um, but I was very nice. I nodded my head. I did everything right as far as Jackie was concerned. I mean, I didn't disrespect him. But when I went back to Joe Ramirez, I said, don't you ever bring anybody over and tell me how to drive the car. This was peak skirts and peak ground effect, wasn't it? How hard to drive? Physically, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I tested at Olden Park first. It was a killer. Nobody ever told me that I only ever had five gallons of fuel in the car every time I drove it. So I didn't know what happened when they filled it up full of fuel. But I was really good at putting the qualifying tires. You know, you go from your C's, which are race tires, or B's and C's, to qualifying tires. I could do all that. That wasn't a problem. It was very hard at Alton. Uh, Snedderton wasn't too bad. Uh, physically, I'm talking about physical-wise. The left-hand turn, I think, was Dijon. That was a killer. My neck was completely gone. And uh, Austria was good because that was a long track, so I could have actually finished that one. But Las Vegas was absolutely killer. But it was a killer for everybody else. So, yes, I was definitely struggling with fitness at some of the tracks, but um, it wasn't bad. It took Derek Dale. He told me it took him over a year to to try and get fit to drive those cars. Yes, they were heavy, but I was pretty strong. I, I listened to your to Roberto's um, podcast with you. Roberto Moreno. And he was my friend. We started together in 1979. I just didn't realize that he was struggling so much with his upper upper body. My, my, it wasn't my upper body. It was my neck. But that, in those days, it was time. The Schumacher fitness didn't come in at that time. It just took you time driving the cars and taking time. So in retrospect, of course, I wasn't ready. But how can you get ready to drive a Formula One car unless you drive a Formula One car? But I will say one other thing about listening to Roberto's, which got me really thinking. He, um, he said he went back. He was Because I remember I was in America when he was in here. I was with Gary Anderson, my friend. I was hanging out with them, hoping that I would love to be driving an Indy car for 450 grand a year. I'm about to turn it down to go back to Formula One cars to be a Formula One driver. That's when I, when I listened to your podcast, that's when I figured that I just did not want it enough. There's no way I would ever go back to Formula One if I could get 450 grand a year driving IndyCar. So Roberto absolutely loved what he was doing. He wanted to be a Formula One driver. That was his goal in life. And that obviously was not my goal in life. Do you think there are a lot of parallels between your experiences in racing and Roberto Moreno's? I mean, you were teammates in Formula Ford. You were both struggling to find cash to keep going. We were both poor. We didn't come for money. We both kind of did it on our own. He met Pee Wee um, when he came over. People liked him. People liked me. And it's still today the same. We, we made up all the time. And uh, he probably worked harder at 
get into Formula One than I did because I obviously, uh, I had my one chance. I knew it was over and I was done. What well, was it over, Tommy? I mean, was there any chance of staying with Theodore for 83? No, I already told him that I would never drive the car. So the, the three-year co- three contract? Oh, the three-year contract. I don't even know where it is. That was, and con- contracts don't mean anything unless you, got, unless you can back them up. No, I already told, I think it was in, I think it was, it was uh, Caesar's Palace. And I just told him I would never drive with you again, even though I probably knew I wasn't going to be asked again, which I wouldn't. But unfortunately, the year after they joined up with Enzyme, which was Morris Nunn, which would have been perfect. But the guy, I think the driver brought money. Well, it was Guerrero and Chocotta, wasn't it? It was Team Venezuela, really. Right. Yeah. But Morris Nunn is a real deal. He was a good guy. He was. He listened to me. We talked a little bit. and He was the man, Morris Nunn. He, he liked drivers. Well, Alex Zanardi speaks very highly of him when they were worked together in IndyCar. But what kind of a welcome did you get at those five races from the Formula One establishment? I went into one of those FOCA meetings. I think Nelson Pique and Nicolai came up and said, hello. I think Nicolai said, um, welcome, Tommy. Um, and I think Nelson said something. I think those two drivers said something. The rest of them, just, there was no talk. I knew Gerhardt. I knew Piero. I don't know if they were in Formula 1 at the time, but I knew those guys. They were kind of my friends. Um, just as an aside, Tommy, I saw Emanuele Piero in Austin over the weekend because he was the driver steward. And I said, oh, Emanuele, I'm, I'm speaking to Tommy uh, next week. And he said, oh, can you ask Tommy? Now, I hope I've got this story right. He says, can you ask Tommy what happened to the captain of the ship? Do you know the story? Emmanuel? Yeah, that was, that was Macau. And that, I think it was 1985 or something, Macau. And we we're all out on the junket, one of those junkets out in um, Hong Kong Harbour. And I don't know who paid for it. I think it might have been Gary Gibson, because I was sponsored by the Accessor Hotel over there. And Gary Gibson, who died, Irish driver who's died. So he did the whole deal with the hotel. And we we're all out there. And Teddy, I'm not Teddy, Sidney Taylor was there. David Kennedy was there. And we were all out having fun. And I guess the captain went to get some chicken. So he left the boat on his rowboat or whatever. Then he came back and I was helping him up into the boat. And then I let him go on purpose, the captain of the ship. Or the captain of the junket, and I guess it's a big problem. It's a big deal if you disrespect the Chinese like that. So he left us there. He took off to have a new captain. Well, Piro remembers that story. <laughs> no, me, me and Piro, me and Piro and Berger. The 1983 when we did, we all did uh, European Formula Three together. That was my best year racing. I haven't fun. We all had a great time in Europe. Well, that was, as you say, European Formula 3. You finished fourth that year. Let's talk about the driving now. Don't be modest. How good were you? How quick were you? Well, it was quick enough that I beat all of those European guys in, I think it was the other side of Italy, by the Adriatic coast. We only had, we were, we're the only team on Yokohama tires and we were struggling with the tires and we didn't have any race tires. And the qualifying tires were great, but the race tires were just we weren't going to beat all the everything everybody else was Michelin and um so I started on the qualifying tires expecting I told my mechanic and Eddie Jordan obviously was the team owner and I told uh I told Shea at the time and Eddie I said uh, maybe we might get 10 laps out of it and then that's it but then anyway, I won the race on qualifying tires how 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 did you keep them alive they were okay on the fast turns and there was a couple of fast turns that the boss was the overtaken spot and uh, the slower turns, I was just able to block enough. I was a pretty good blocker. 
and it was it was uh, Martini was behind me, Perlusia Martini, who was a really good driver, and um, he just couldn't get. I held him back for the whole the whole race, and I don't know. I mean, give me a car and I could do it. What were your greatest strengths? I could learn tracks very fast. I could learn tracks quick, and I could adapt. My first year racing in 1979, I was very nervous because I never won a race. So we're waiting from 8 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock in the afternoon to drive a race. All day long, I was just sick to my stomach. I never puked, but I was sick to my stomach because it was a long day, and I never ate nothing because I never won. But once I started winning, uh, which was I won Nuremberg in 79, Nuremberg ring, and then 1980, I just was winning. You know, as much as I'd lose, I'd win. And uh, once I started winning, then I got very confident and then I could feel, I didn't care where I started on the grid. In those low formulas, I could start second, third, fourth, or fifth, and I would still be very confident that I could win the race. I don't know why. I don't know where this came from, by the way, because none of our family drove a car. I just had that belief in myself that I was the best and I was definitely better than everybody else. How genuine was that belief? Or did you feel you had to give the impression of having that confidence just to give everybody else the confidence in you? No, I actually believed it. (laughs) (laughs) Your greatest strength, you think, was your ability to learn tracks. If you were to pick a weakness, what was it? Not working hard enough on the car to get pole position. I remember Sandy used to work really, really hard on his car because it was really important to get pulled. And I just drove what I was given. I, I was learning a lot. I learned a lot from Ralph. Ralph was my first, Ralph Furman. That's when I learned about corner waves. That's when I learned about, I think I learned tire Steiger later on, but I was learning a lot with Ralph. And then when I got to the F2000 with the slick cars and the wings, I learned a lot with Ralph. And Ralph always knew if I wasn't winning, there was something wrong. So he would check the car. The shocks used to break in the car all the time back in the day. But Ralph was always 100% behind me or Moreno or Senna or anybody that he thought was his guy. He believed us. And then after that, of course, I went with Gary Anderson. That's when I really started learning about car setup and stuff. But I remember Senna years later, Senna worked really hard to get the car good so that he could get pole. And I never bought it. I just went, ah, I really don't need pole. Up. I'd win the race anyhow. Did you believe in the perfect lap? Yeah. I, the pole wasn't as important to me as it was to other people. So I could have had a lot more poles if I made more of an effort. Did you ever drive one? I thought they're all perfect. But at the time, obviously, I thought they're all perfect. Like somebody asked me one day, did you ever have an off? Well, come on, Tom, you have to have off days. I said, I don't have an off day. I didn't have an off. I never had an off day. And he goes, everybody has off days. I would get into the, certainly the, the 1600s back in the day, they were rap, so rattly. I might get in in the morning, like eight o'clock in the morning, we were driving and the car's rattling and banging a little bit. I just may not be feeling 100% for like a lap or two. Then I'm good to go. But I never, I never had an off day in the car that I, if something was, if I didn't feel right, I would either come in and fix it or fix it with the driving style, whatever the case may be. But then years later, when I started riding mountain bikes, and then this is only six years ago, and I crashed my mountain bike a couple of times, I got injured, and then I went back on the mountain bike, and I had an off day. I couldn't find my way around the trail because I was shitting myself because I didn't want to injure myself again. But as far as driving the race cars, I don't think I had an off day. Even in terms of lap time? I always drove to the, I always drove flat out. 
because that's what we had to do in those days. There was no, even Formula One, I remember talking to Gary Anderson, he was always confused early in the days with Formula One. Why, you know, well, I tried to do a fan, I'm doing qualifying laps. But back in the day, you had to do qualifying laps every lap because there's no pit stops. Remember back in like 80s? In the, in the 80s, you had to drive flat out all the time. This leads me nicely onto a quote from Eddie Jordan, who said back in the day, forget Senna, forget Schumacher, Tommy Byrne was the best of them all. What's your reaction to that quote? It caused me a lot of trouble. <laughs> it caused me a lot of trouble because, you know, I didn't say it, but obviously it's been used now over and over again with the, move, with the book and the movie. I mean, yeah, I might have been cocky at the time, but now maybe not so for sure. If I was with Senna, if we were together on the same track at the same time, yes, there would be a problem. We would both have problems, but it never happened. We never got to do it. And the same with Schumacher, that we would have a good team. But then I read, I watched Schumacher's documentary. Man, he worked hard. We'll be back with Tommy in a second. But listen, I've been joined by Sky F1's Natalie Pinkham. Hello, Pinks. Hi, TC. Yeah, I'm just dropping by to quickly tell your listeners about the F1 Nation podcast, which is me, you, and the 96 F1 champion, Mr. Damon Hill. And we talk about all the latest F1 action. We certainly do. And in this week's episode, we're asking all the big questions ahead of the Mexican Grand Prix. And we've got a top guest to answer them as well. We're joined by former Jordan Williams and Ferrari engineer, Rob Smedley. Who is a fantastic and that episode is out now and new episodes come out every tuesday during the season so search your favorite podcast app or f1's youtube channel for f1 nation and get listening cheers pinks now let's get back to tommy let's talk a little bit more about senna you won the formula ford festival in 1981 in his car after he'd gone home to brazil retired from motorsport do you think you could have beaten him in the same race in that car? For sure. Well, remember, we, there was a special engine in those days. Okay, there's an engine called Patch. And if you look, uh, uh, Kenny Etchen had it. Trevor Van Roy had it. This is 1979, 19, like 77, I think. Whoever had Patch, there was never such a thing as a slipstream. You just couldn't pass. It was so fast. Then Patch was retired and it was only brought out for once a year which was the Formula Ford Festival. And whoever was the works minister engine driver at that time and who could win the festival would get patched. Roberta had it the year before. I don't know how the year, I never was a patch. I was never a minister driver because I had a Riga engines. But then um, patch was at Snedderton. It was one second a lap faster the week before. Now remember the weather was getting cooler and then you put patch in. So the testing was always a lap, second a lap quicker. Then you go to Grand's Hatch, two to three, tenths for a second just for the engine so when Ralph asked me he said Senna's just left me he's retired he's you know he's left me in the in the lurch and I already won my two championships in Formula 4 2000 with Ralph and uh, Ralph Furman that is and he said can you um do you think you can win that race I said shit yeah with Patch it's no brainer and it wasn't misplaced was it yeah and it wasn't misplaced you did win yeah but it was misplaced because then when I did get we went testing at Snedderton uh, well I wasn't I wasn't a second quicker than we than the year before. The, the Moreno was the year before, and the other guy was the year before that. 
I wasn't a second quicker. I couldn't even go through Russell flat out with, with Senna's car. I was struggling with the car. And I didn't know what was going on, but all I knew is, shit, this should be flat out in the first lap. And Ralph's answer was, and you, Tommy, remember, you just came from slicks and wings. Do you not think that maybe you're having a hard time adjusting to the, you know, the road tires again? I said, no, things are something wrong with the car, which is always my mantra. Which there was. If you, if you can't go through it flat out in the first lap, there's something wrong. Then Ralph started worrying a little bit. Remember, he had, Maria, he had um, I think he had the Mexican, Toledano, and he had Kiki. And see, so he had two other drivers. Then he said, well, you know, Senna's at the airport. Now, I don't know if he was just screwing with me. He said, Senna's at the airport, Tommy, and he's ready to come back and do the race. Are you sure you can win this race? I said, fuck yeah. But I wasn't that sure. And then they got to the race. And it was a struggle. All four races were a struggle. I have no idea to this day, but I was going, I went quicker the year before with my older car than I did that year with Senna's car. And then Rick Morris is right up my ass and James Weaver. I have no idea what happened. I won it. I won all races, but I don't know what to this day. I don't know why. I tried all driving styles. We tried different chocolate, but we tried everything. And yes, I won the festival, which was the biggest race of my life, changed everything for me. But um, I don't know. It wasn't easy like it should have been. Did you ever talk to Senna about you winning that Formula Ford Festival in his car? No. No, I think, I, I mean, I wasn't even thinking what was happening in his mind of what was going on. The next time I talked to Senna, he wanted to beat my ass because um, he came back, I think, January, maybe February or something of the after I won the festival. And I had, a, I had the same car as him. And I used to get the cars for the Brazilians for Ralph. Road cars, we're talking now. Road cars, yeah. My friend John McCambridge, I go down to London and I get the cars. So Senna had the car from the year before that I got for Ralph for, to sell to Senna. But it turns out Senna never paid for it. But that was, and he was never come back anyhow. So I would just, when I got a puncture, I would just take the wheels off one car and put them on my car. And I figured, you know, before I took it back to London and sell, sold it again, uh, I'd figure out, you know, I'd fix the punctures. And yes, I guess Senna came back and um, he's seen my car outside and his car outside and the punctured tires on his car, different wheels and uh, my car. So he just came in and he was just, he wanted to beat me up. He just lost his mind. And so there was a big, big to do in the office. And uh, that was it. I mean, I thought we were okay until that. And do you think that that was all born out of the competition between the two of you? You were racing in the, the series above, but you're both Van Diemen drivers. And do you think he had the crosshairs on you? He could see that you were his biggest rival coming through. We both drove for the same team and we hung out a lot together. I mean, we used to do breakfast together. We'd be out drinking. He wouldn't drink, obviously, but I'd be drinking. He wouldn't. He always thought I was doing everything wrong, which he, he was probably right. But um, I was managing to get by and win races, and he just didn't like the way that I conducted myself. But we spent lots and lots of time together. He, he was just a diehard. That was just his life. His life was win at all costs. And, and I was, yeah, I wanted to win too at all costs, but I still had a life. But I guess I'm pretty sure that I, did, I had a couple of drinks, and I would tell Ralph and Angie, I said, I just can't wait to get the chance. So we're in the same race together because he's not going to run over me like he runs over everybody else. And he knew the times I was doing and the cars that I got out of and then he got into the same car. So I, I, I presumed that there was definitely a rivalry going on you know, between both of us, even though he shouldn't have had to worry about me. 
everyone talks about the impatience of youth. Did you sense in him that that he was a man on a mission? When you were having breakfast with him, was it always racing, racing, racing? Or could you talk to him about other stuff? No, I was actually okay. We were in the house. We spent so much time in, in, in Ralph and Angie's house together and stuff. It wasn't always racing. He was just completely different. I picked up his dad from the airport uh, early on in his, when he was Ayrton uh, da Silva. Uh, he was testing or something, and I went down and picked his dad up. And um, I had to drive 120 miles from the airport back up to Snedderton, not saying a word to the man because he doesn't speak any English. It was a close-knit thing, you know. It's just, I guess, I guess he just got, he was the one that got pissed more upset with me before I got upset with him. I didn't steal his tires first off that just that was just a joke I just I just took them from the car he was never supposed to come back again <laughs> Tommy do you even now spend time thinking about why Senna became the force that he did in Formula One and you never got the opportunity to show what you could do no not really because I showed what I could do when I tested the McLaren in my mind I was it was all, I mean, remember, there's t- hundreds of drivers that go through the same type thing. I obviously had a little bit more success with the lower formula, but I did get to drive Nicky Lauda's McLaren in the same, within two months of my Theodore. And I did get to go four seconds lap quicker. And I did, in my mind, know that, hey, it's okay. I mean, I, I, knew, I, I knew I could have done it. Unfortunately, wrong time, wrong place. Let's talk a bit more about that test. Uh, for people who aren't aware, Tommy won the British Formula 3 Championship in 1982 and his prize for winning it was this test at Silverstone in that year's McLaren that was being raced by Nicky Lauda and John Watson. How critical was that test for your career? It was critical that, because I told the Theodore people, Everybody that would listen, I told them how fast I was going to be in the McLaren because obviously they told me I couldn't drive. I said, well, just wait, see what I can do. That's how critical it was to let the team, the Theodore team I just drove for, which mostly, mostly Julian Randall's, um, that I could have done it with the right car. And I was quick and he was wrong to disrespect me and, and treat me like shit like he did. That's how critical it was for me. But as far as uh, getting a drive, I already knew there was no drive before I even went there. Maybe no drive at McLaren, but... There was no drive anywhere. They were done, they, everything was, everybody was signed up for the year. Ah, maybe no drive for 83, but looking longer term, were you aware that people were going to be looking at the lap times? And oh, yeah, I did. did you feel the pressure to perform? I think I already burned my bridges at that stage because thinking back on it now, um, Joe Ramirez worked for McLaren before and then he worked for McLaren after. And, and uh Terrell Alexander and Teddy, Teddy Mayer, they were all there. I mean, they, they all knew about me, what I was like driving with, with Theodore because remember, the teams are always going to be around forever. Drivers come and go. I didn't realize at the time, you know, that I was, I was probably caused some trouble with Theodore when they wouldn't listen to me. So therefore, at that stage, probably wasn't that many people looking at me. But the test I did... I did a really good time. I was a little bit worried I wasn't going to be able to do it when I heard Thierry Bootson got out of the car before me. And he said, the car's really, it's got a lot of understeer. And I was listening because I would go over there and listen to what he said because I respected Thierry Bootson because 
that guy could drive. He came to the former Ford Festival in 1976 and nearly won it from one of the only guys that ever would come out of, you know, England to, to win the festival. And then I watched him in Formula 3 and Formula 2. So when he said the car was on this year, and I'm thinking, oh, shit. I just told all these guys I'm going to just be really, really fast and the car must not be that good if he's saying that. So I was a little bit worried before I got in the car. But once I got in the car and did three laps, I thought, okay, so a little bit, of, it's not on the steering. I would call it, I would break a couple of feet earlier, turn a couple of feet earlier and back in the gas and there was no on the steering at all. So then I started getting on it and the car felt just, the difference is, well, four seconds elapsed the difference, but I don't think I could have spun the car if I tried. You know, you could drive into the turn as hard as you want, turn the steering wheel as hard as you want to, and you just could not lose the car. The car was just unbelievable. Did it feel like a different formula to the Theodore that you'd been driving? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my Formula 3 car had more grip than the Theodore on the slow turns. I mean, the difference was just day and night. It's like, and by the, and they never changed. And we used C compound tires. We didn't use qualifying tires. The tires, and we all had the same tires. Was all the three drivers? We had the same tires. The car was absolutely unreal. So that's why I left Formula One, knowing in my mind, hey, pretty, pretty good car. Because it was night and day different to anything else you'd driven. How quickly did you get to grips with it? You talk about. After three laps, you'd got a got a handle on the understeer. But by the end of the day, do you feel that you'd you were optimizing every part of it? It wasn't a day; it was twenty five laps. We all had the same amount of time, and I think after fifteen laps, we all came in and they gave us brand new tires, and we all went back out for ten laps. That's just the way. Every everybody got a fair run with the car. There was every driver that got in. They would change the pedals for the because we went down. I went down to the factory. I think it was like a month before to walking to get my pedals fitted. So everybody did, and then so the mechanics would you know when you when one guy got out to put the pedals in, take about half hour, and then you go back out. Exact same twenty five laps for everybody. Ron was trying to keep it as fair as my last three laps were exactly the same time. One minute ten point ten point one ten point one. 10.1. And I put my head down. I'm thinking, God, I could have sworn I did club better that time. Same time. And then the last lap, the same time again. And then there was a guy called Joey Green in there who was a friend of mine. I went over to England with him in 1976 for the very first time. And Martin Donnelly, I think, might have been there as a kid. Joey was there. And Joey said, Tommy, they're not giving you the right times. I was getting a 9.6. I said, yeah, right. So I didn't even think about what Joey Green said. I just didn't. I just didn't even believe him because I would never, it never crossed my mind that the Tyrell Alexander would give me, not give me the right time. And back in those days, we didn't have computers and I didn't bring anybody to say, hey, I want you to time every lap. And then, of course, obviously, we get to the, the real story was then, uh, I think it was like 10 years ago. When I, I think it was, and I was writing the book still. So I had to be like 10, maybe 15 years ago. I was over in America at Cod Lake and I met, Tony Van Dungen, who was the mechanic that day. And I hadn't met Tony since 1982 when he was working on my car. McLaren, he said, Tommy, shit, you were so fast. Whatever happened to you? What you doing? What are you doing now? Daddy, daddy, daddy. I said, I'm driving a coach and working at Ohio, whatever the case will be. And he said, man, you were the fastest guy that day. And you didn't even have the best car. And I said, well, 
I had the same car as Terry Boots and just got out. He goes, no, because when we were putting your pedals in, we were told not to give you full throttle. That's when the light went off in my head. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, because I went to Ford gear, I think probably in the seventh lap, instead of going through the chicane woodcut in third, I go, went through it in Ford and I went through cops in Ford. So I switched gears up a little bit. And then I started thinking about the one minute, 10.1, minute, 10.1. So then I went, shit. I said, uh, why did they do that? He goes, oh, I guess they didn't want you to be quickest. Does that make you angry? Oh, yeah. I was, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I didn't even think. Why would, of course, now I, in retrospect, yeah, I pissed off so many of the buddies. I'm pretty sure that it was pretty easy to do it. But um, no. You said to me, was there a chance of Formula 1? And, and I said, no, there's no chance of Formula 1. Everybody was signed up. Well, 10.1 was a 9.6 that they weren't giving me properly, we'll say. And then the, the gas was off. Could have been an 8 point something. Maybe the people who cared about fast drivers might have said, you know what? Maybe we better talk to them. That hurt me because I was over it. You know, it was 20-something years after the fact. So I was kind of over the Formula 1 thing and what could have been. And that brought it all back. Was there much interest from other teams after that test then? No, because 10.1 is not quick enough to get any interest. You would need to have been doing like a, like, even though I was way quick in theory, that wasn't quick enough. You need to be quick in that for people to start thinking, well, maybe we might look at the Irish game. One thing I've learned while talking to you is that you were blindingly, you had this irresistible speed, but how hard did you work at it outside the car? How hard after that McLaren test? Were you, were you ringing up the, 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 the Tolmans of the time or, or, or the, the Tyrrells? I never rang anybody. I never called anybody. I never rang anybody ever. I, because I just wasn't good at, you know, I would try to get, I would hustle with people. I would get people friendly with them, trying to get money to win races. To, but as far as picking the phone up and calling, a, we did go to see Ken, Eddie after the Formula One test. Eddie Jordan. I was heading straight to America. I was done. And I had my mind made up. I was gone. Eddie wanted me to stay in, in England and Europe in one more year to do European Formula 3. And he would manage me. And the first thing I guess he, and I guess he did manage me. I must have signed another contract. I can't remember. Uh, lucky enough, I didn't make any money. But um, so he then did talk to Terrell. And I was supposed to do with Yokohama and cost speakers. I was going to do European Formula 3, which I did with Eddie, because he wanted me to hang on one more year. They never know, Tommy. Let's, let's come on, say it. So I did. And uh, I think he called Ken, and Ken wanted, I'm pretty sure it was $2 million. So, but as far as me calling people, no, I never called anybody. That's the difference with me and Roberto. He would be calling everybody, and I did not. How tough was it to accept at the time that the Formula 1 dream was over? I, I knew I only had one chance, so it wasn't, I mean, obviously I drank a lot after it, but then, you know, who didn't I wonder, get to Formula One? And, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, it was over and I knew it was over and I, there's no way I was going to go back. I, I just, I gave myself one chance and I got there, wrong car, wrong time and was out of it. Why did you think of going to America and not somewhere like, I don't know, Japan was becoming a, a destination for European drivers back then to sort of reignite their... F1 ambitions. Remember, I always wanted to go to America as a welder when I was 15 years of age. So it's kind of always there. But I did try Japan. I went over there and I drove 
F3000 car. I think Eddie got me the deal. And in 1990, 94, 95 or something, flew over to Japan and Thomas Dallianson was me and him were up for the drive together. And in the Formula 3000 car, I was never on Suzuka before. And I never drove a Formula 2000 car before. And, uh, and the same thing, I did one lap before the day before. I did one lap and I was absolutely lost. Remember, there was no, there was no simulators in those days. I didn't even look at a video. I just went to Suzuka. It flat out, that last turn flat out. Oh, 130 yeah. 130R. I did one lap the night, the day before. That's all I had time to get me in the car. And I passed the pits. I missed the pits and came back in again. And at the same time, my neck was gone from half a lap because I had a, a bell helmet on. And it was like somebody was ripping the helmet off my head. So my neck was already done. And um, so the next day, I got a, I borrowed a showy helmet, I think, from maybe some of the team. John, Johnny Herbert was there at the time. And uh, the next day, I did much better. But that night, I thought my racing career was over because it was such a difficult track, such a car. haven't driven nothing like that in years. And the next day, I got to a decent time. I think I got to nearly as quick as, as Danielson. But he was already with them for two years, so they hired him, and I didn't get, I didn't get to drive. But um, it was getting a little harder. As you're not driving all the time, you know. Funnily enough, Roberto Moreno talked about how physical Suzuka is when he had his big break there with Benetton in, in 91. My neck was gone in half a lap because the helmet I had on was like somebody was standing over. This is only third gear. Somebody was standing over my, my head, lifting the helmet off my head and my neck at the same time. That's the way it felt. Because remember, those cars had no... There was no side. You was, your shoulders were sticking right up. And uh, XFM won the helmet at the time. That's when I learned helmets do make a difference. We put on, I think it was an RA or a show. We put it on. The opposite thing happened, but it was too late. My neck was gone, and I was having to push my head back against the headrest to stop it from falling over. Yeah, and again, wrong time, wrong place. So, Tommy, you had this irresistible raw talent the Formula One career didn't happen as you would have wished. If you could live it all again and change one thing, what would that be? I probably wouldn't have been hanging out with the Theodore guys drinking with them at night. This is what, during those five races in 82? Yes. Yeah. I was always the buddies with mechanics for all my teams. But unfortunately, the managers were there too. Um, and I, once I got a couple of drinks, then I really would let them know what I felt. Uh, so probably, and I... I only came to this conclusion yesterday because I knew you were going to ask. I knew you were going to ask me because everybody's asked me over the years, you know, what would you have done different? And I always said nothing because I would never have got to where I was going to get if something was different. You know, you know what I mean? But, but yeah, but, but that's what I would have done. I would not have hung out with Julie Reynolds and Jory Mears. The drinking, you've already said that, you know, you'd go out with it and Senna, you'd drink he wouldn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why did the penny not drop that perhaps that's what I need to be doing if I'm going to make a successful Formula One career? Well, I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't doing nothing crazy drinking in the, in the Europeans in the, before Formula One. I wasn't drinking crazy with Santa. We weren't having partying together, you know. I, would, I was doing, Gary Anderson never thought it was a problem at all. So there wasn't really, that really wasn't the issue. It was after Formula One, that's when I went completely crazy. But yes, I did hang out with those Theodore guys and I did, but it wasn't like I was lying down sloshed on the ground. 
Tommy, what does completely crazy mean? That I really didn't care about. I wasn't going to get it. I didn't. I wasn't even trying for drive anymore. I just had way too much fun for 10, 15 years in, in America. And I still won races. I mean, I was just, that was just the way it was. I knew I wasn't going to be an IndyCar driver. I knew I wasn't going to solve me. I just enjoyed myself. But that's, a, that's an, another good point. You knew you weren't going to be an IndyCar driver. Why? You had the talent. Because I, would, I, I didn't ask anybody. I just didn't, you know, I, I just wasn't, I never, same as Formula One. I never had the big plan. Here's what I'm going to be. I just talk every day as it came. I mean, I tried in my own way, but obviously never like, uh, like, like the Roberto or he just loved it so much. Maybe I, maybe I just didn't like it. You know, I didn't like being told what to do all the time. Are there comparisons to be made between you and James Hunt? No, I, I, I did. Yeah. I tried to do it my way, but I don't think I could have went as long as James, you know, like I think, I think I petered out a little bit quicker, like party wise. Yeah. I did cocaine. I did all that stuff, but never, never piles up, you know, I mean, I probably would have done more if I could get hold of it, but I wasn't. I couldn't because I didn't have. I didn't have the money. Maybe I'd be dead if I had the money. Did you know James? No, I met James once. He tried to pick up my girlfriend at the Tip Top in in, in Monaco in nineteen eighty three. <laughs> I was driving for three. He was there, but no, I did not know James. But I'd driven his car. I've driven in Mandela, and I've driven at Silverstone, uh, thanks to James Hagen. So I do some vintage stuff now. It's it's kind of cool. But Tommy. So if James Hunt lived a similar lifestyle, why did he make it and you didn't? I guess he just probably got with the right guy at the right time. And then, well, I think if you read the story, he just basically kind of got lucky to get with McLaren at the time, right? And I think I was come to the end, you know? I was like 1982. I think it was starting to become pretty corporate at that stage. Did you ever think about driving anything else? Um, I remember... Henri Toivonen drove in a British Formula 3 race that you were in at Thruxton. Toivonen being a, a rally a rally guy. Did you ever think about that? Well, I did my couple of uh, celebrity races. One at Thruxton and one in, um, at Stetterton. I won both of them against all those guys. Once the Formula 1 test was over with the McLaren, um, I was heading straight to America. I mean, that was it. I was done. Eddie kept me a year later, and then I stayed with Gary a year later. So I would have been gone two years earlier. So it all comes back to, I obviously didn't want it bad enough to make any more soccer fights. I did what I, I got to where I got to very fast, won a shitload of races, made a lot of friends, and moved on. And, you know, and then I started in America again. I, I started Formula Ford at 1600 in America in 1975 or 1985. So I went from Formula One in 1982 Back to Formula Ford in 1985 in America to try and win the, the runoffs for Ralph Furman. Then I did Indy Lights, and then I did some uh, long-distance racing, and then I went to Mexico, and then I decided, hey, it's, I better get a job. Well, talking of the job, you now run a very successful driver training program in the U.S. Well, I, I'm just one of the guys. I'm just one of the, guy, one of the main guys I met in Ohio. Um, I do that. This year I didn't do it as much because I do private coaching for a team from Chicago, amateur team for Porsche. And I do um, myself and Dave Meehan have a little small business called Diablo Drifter. We design and build a, a machine that goes in the back of the car for a skid car training for teenagers. And it goes in any car in 15 minutes. We've had that like for 10 years. Gary Anderson designed it for me. 
And then a lot of teenage, we do a lot of teen uh, defensive driving for teenagers over here. And from a racing point of view, clearly you're able to tell people how to go fast on a racetrack. Do you now give these young guns advice on how to do it off track? No, mostly uh, I don't deal with young guns anymore. Now I'm dealing with old guns. <laughs> my my old my oldest driver right now is 79. So no, I did all that. I did all the. Of course, I told them, "Hey guys, you know, here's the right thing to do. Uh, you can't do this, this, and this." But it's so different these days. You know, I have no time for the young guns. It's 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 just completely changed. Uh, I get to drive now. Sometimes sometimes I will drive. I did like four races last year with one of my clients in the enduro in the in the Porsches. Uh, I've driven the LMP2 car for James Hagen a couple of times in uh, Daytona and Watkins Glen. I've driven over service, I've driven in Mandela. I'm having more fun driving now than I've ever had. It's a hell of a lot of fun. I get paid, not great, but I get paid something and I get to coach at the same time. Yeah, it's long, and I still, decent driver, I still know what the car is doing. I set all the cars up for, for the team I work for. I think I like anything up to 20 drivers, so... I think at Elkhart Lake, I drove 10 different cars, set them all up, and then they get in the drive. So it's, it's, this is a good time in my life. Okay, you're no longer working with the young guns, but you must be keeping an eye on them. And there's a lot of talk at the minute about getting an American driver into Formula One. Is there anyone who's caught your eye? I mean, people talk about Colton Herter, but is there anyone else? Or, or is he the best of the bunch at the minute? I think it's cold in here. It's probably the best of the bunch of the men. The problem over here is just too many series. There's too many different classes to try to figure out who is that guy, you know, the, the guy with the it factor. In Europe, you can see them. Actually, it's probably a little harder to find them in Europe now too because there's so many different series. When we were doing it, everybody knew who was on the way up, you know. Over here, it's a little bit more difficult. But cold in here just absolutely seems like he's got what it takes. And so did uh, New Garden would have as well. But will they sacrifice what it takes to go over there? I mean, Rossi's a great driver and he didn't make it in Formula One. I think if Andretti does his own team and he's 100% behind Colton Hurd, yes, they, they have a chance. And uh, Pato Ward, the Mexican kid, uh, if he goes with Zach Brown, he has a chance with Formula One as well. But they have to get all the help that Max Verstappen's getting with Red Bull. Is the performance of an IndyCar close enough to Formula One to get a, a clear picture on these guys? I mean, around Cota last weekend, I think the Formula Ones were eight seconds a lap faster than when IndyCar were last there. I think a really good driver, a naturally talented driver, will be able to up his game to Formula One for sure. Now they've got a lot of help as well. You know, they've got a lot, of, maybe not much testing, but uh, at least uh, they'll know the tracks with the simulator before they get there. I think it really, like a match for Stappen, could probably go anywhere he wanted. So you find another Max, Max Verstappen in America. I think Colden's really good. I think he's he's definitely um, yeah, he's he's probably the best bet because of his age. I mean, remember, if you're 25, you're too old now for Formula One. Tommy, it's really interesting talking to you now because you seem to have such a clear view on racing. You seem to understand it so well. If only you had all this knowledge back in the early 80s, hey. Hey, what can I say? Shit happens. Well, Tommy, you were a lost talent to Formula One. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. And it was my honour to be on your show. I never told you to get on. Tommy, thanks a lot. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye.
What a story. Given Tommy's reputation as a hellraiser, he was more thoughtful and introspective than I was expecting. Yet he still has that same confidence in his ability. For sure, was his response when I asked if he could have beaten Senna in the same car. That's something I love about Tommy Byrne. He says he never rang anyone asking for a drive, and half of me is shouting, why not? Yet the fact that he didn't is probably the part of the jigsaw that made him so good. I'm Tommy Byrne. I'm good. You ring me if you want me. Tommy, it was great to chat. Thanks for your time and for telling your story so well. As ever, please remember to send in any thoughts or stories that you have on Tommy. Were you at Silverstone for his McLaren test in 1982? Or any of the five races that he did in that Theodore? Or what about the Formula Ford Festival of 1981? We want to hear what you have to say. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Jean-Éric Verne after last week's episode. What a candid, thoughtful person Jev is. Let's start with this from Tim. Hi Tom, really liked the pod with Jev. I've actually seen him twice, but not in Formula One. Once in 2010, in the British Formula 3 Championship at Silverstone, and again at the first London E-Prix back in 2015. I always thought he'd be more successful than he was in Formula One, but his honesty in the interview shed a light on why. Many thanks for those thoughts, Tim. And what a great picture of the podium you've sent in from what looks like the London E-Prix. I think we all thought Jev would be more successful, didn't we? And how about this from D. Sturdevant? I loved what Jeff had to say about one of his favourite cars being the Formula 3 car. It's so rare to hear top drivers talk about how they enjoyed the feel of a junior Formula car or past cars. Well, thanks for the message. And yes, it is indeed rare to hear drivers talk about their love of the junior formulas. We hear quite a lot about karting, but not the junior single-seaters. Now, next up, let's hear this from Sarah Jones. Thanks, Tom, for this pod with Jev. Absolutely adored it. Thanks, Sarah. What could have been? I'm glad to see him successful in Formula E. He's still got the talent to go back to Formula One if asked, I reckon. Now, that's an interesting idea, Sarah. Jev back in Formula One all these years later. But I'm not sure Helmut Marco would go for that. So he'd have to look outside the Red Bull family, wouldn't he? And let's end with this from Cy Vlog. I think Red Bull would, in retrospect, have been better advised to promote Verne and not Kvyat in 2015. Although Kvyat barely outperformed Ricardo over the course of the 2015 season, his abrupt demotion in 2016 after just four races showed that he was promoted before he was ready. Jev, on the other hand, given how close he ran Ricardo in 2012 and 2013, would have been a logical choice to me. Now, that's an interesting train of thought, Sai, and sadly, we'll never know what would have happened had Jev been promoted to Red Bull in 2015. As ever, we got lots more messages and thank you to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing what you have to say and we do read them all. Well, that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Tommy Byrne. And don't forget to send in your thoughts and stories on him. Otherwise, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.